Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Seip preaches out of 2 Timothy with a message called The Old, Old Story. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. This is the word of God to us this morning at, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning. In the fall, I will begin a series on the kingdom of heaven. You know, I've often said that for every time the Bible tells us about salvation, or in the Old Testament, the coming of salvation, it tells us twice as often about how to live this life in Christ coming again and the rewards that await us. But those rewards are not by grace, but by works. And we need to be focused upon doing our faith as opposed to just simply reading about it and tucking it away in our heart without regard to using it. So in preparation for that, I thought a good place to start, although it is a few weeks ahead of this series, is to take a look at the Bible because everything that we teach and preach here in this church is based on God's word, on the gospel, or what it it means is the good news. And so if we cannot trust the Bible, then you cannot trust my messages and you cannot trust the fact that we need to be pursuing and seeking after the rewards that are yet to come for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and our salvation by by grace. This past week, I don't know if you caught it, but the president of the Philippines, the Philippines is the largest Catholic church um, nation in the world in terms of a percentage of its, of its citizens. The largest percentage of citizens in the world is in the Philippines. So you would think that somehow the president of the Philippines that something from God's word might uh, affect him, but he's challenging anybody to prove to him that there is a God. And if possible, take a selfie of yourself with God. Can you imagine that kind of heresy? And if you can prove it to him, he'll step aside as president. I'd rather be praying that he finds Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and in that he remains in place and leads under the, the rule of the gospel. But um, think, you just think about how it is in this world that people cannot see, even though there's something within them that desires that they pursue after something greater than themselves. So anyway, that's the focus of this morning's message, and, uh, and it's a prelude to the coming series on the kingdom of heaven. So this question that is before us this morning is whether we can trust the Bible as being true of uh, all that it says to us. It's 
record of statements, are they true or not? And I tell you right up front that I believe, me personally believe, that the Bible is true. And you see there is a presumption in the Bible's favor. Its own claim pronounces that Christ himself believed it. There's an old saying about the Bible that says, it finds me. It finds me is another way of saying the Bible is alive in the Holy Spirit. If I were to regard scripture as an assortment of truth and falsehood, some combination of two, I couldn't honestly say that I believe it, could I? But I do believe the Bible. And to my mind, the Bible is not true in spots, but true and trustworthy from the beginning to the end. And this has been the historic faith of the Christian church all through the ages. And we've reached what now seems a, a pinnacle of rejection of biblical truths in our society in particular. And if we believe the Bible, we're called all manner of names and ridiculed for being simple-minded. At times we may fear that we're the only one left that believes the word of God as Elijah himself lamented, you recall, back in the Old Testament. He sits under the juniper tree and he says, I, even I, am only left. But the Lord reassures us as he did Elijah in that day, as he said, I have left me a great multitude who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Now, whether a person believes his Bible or rejects it, two things may be justly required of that person. On the one hand, he should frankly and truthfully state his position regarding the Bible. And secondly, he should be ready always to give an answer to anyone that asks for a reason, for a reason why he believes, for a reason why he doesn't believe. And so I ask you this morning, are you prepared to give a reason? And here are my reasons this morning that I give you for holding that the Bible is the true and trustworthy word of God. And the first is this, there is a presumption in its favor. There is a presumption in its favor. If there is a God anywhere in the universe, and if we were are his children, we would surely not leave us in doubt, I don't think, concerning the, the great problems which we have to do with our spiritual and eternal life. If an earthly father advises his sons and daughters in their distress and in their bewilderment over some uh, issue, assuring them of his plans, his father's plans and purposes concerning them, his children, is it reasonable to assume that our Heavenly Father would do less than that? Plato lamented that he was adrift on a raft upon an open sea with no rudder, rudder no star above to, to guide him. Yet he, a pagan though he was, ventured the hope that in good time, quote, this is from Plato himself, the gods would give us a staunch boat to sail in. Well, our God has done that in his word. That was the expression of a, of a universal thought that most people, if not all, have. If there is a God, he must reveal himself to his children. And there must be then somewhere in the world a clear and authoritative word of God. 
and he's given it to us. And praise God, most of us have even more than one copy of his word in our homes. The next thing that gives me hope and strength in my belief in the Bible is its own claim. The Bible's own claim. The Bible claims to be inspired, and it leaves no doubt regarding its inspiration. The word is theonostia, Greek word meaning breathed of God. It says in explicit terms, every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it speaks no less definitively as to the method of its inspiration. It says, for no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spoke from God being moved by the Holy Spirit. If the Bible is not true, if it's not true, then it sets up this fraudulent claim. But if that claim can be verified, we have no alternative but to receive it at its face value and to frame our lives around it accordingly. And the question pro or con must be determined by internal evidence within God's word himself. So if you open the Bible, you'll find that the proof of its inspiration is as satisfactory as that which is declared to substantive the morality of the soul and the, uh, or for example, the divinity of Christ or any other fundamental truth. The next is its claim is verified. I believe the Bible because its claim is verified. An examination of the contents of the Bible discloses a number of facts, and here they are. First, it's unity. It's unity. Here's a, a volume made up of 66 books on a large variety of themes written by 40-odd writers of various tongues and nationalities, writing at intervals along a period of 1,600 years, are you starting to get the picture? All these people, different backgrounds, 1,600 years, yet the 66 books, when bound together, constitute a harmonious and consistent whole, yielding one system of doctrine, one code of ethics, one rule of faith and practice for all mankind. Now, that doesn't just happen. For example, if 40-odd persons of different backgrounds and degrees of musical talent, musical culture, were to pass through the organ loft of any particular church, for example, at long intervals of time between each other, right, 66 people, long intervals of time between them, and without possibly uh, any uh, capability of collusion between them, they strike 66 notes individually, which when combined should become the grandest oratorio ever heard. I respectably submit that the man who regarded that as a mere chance would be universal agreement to be regarded as a fool, right? How in the world would that happen? 66 people, 
various intervals, not seeing each other, having musical background, coming from different backgrounds, each striking a different note on the organ, and when combined, those 66 notes form some beautiful thought. Is that possible without some intervention of some master or universal uh, ruler or capability or, or person who's conducting that? The, the conclusion would be irresistible, I think, that there was one controlling mind behind that process, a great composer behind that. Well, the next thing, I think, is its completeness, the Bible's completeness. The Bible's the only book that touches and solves every one of the great problems that have to do with human destiny. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. You cannot ask a question concerning God or immortality or salvation, which it does not answer and answer so clearly as to satisfy the simplest mind, a child's mind. It also furnishes a code of morals, which covers every possible question that can be asked regarding the conduct of life. The Decalogue, or what we call the Ten Commandments, and its expression in the Sermon of the Mount are universally recognized as two perfect ethical truths the Sermon on the Mount, and the Ten Commandments. And when the Bible speaks of truth and righteousness, it's transversed the entire circumference of human experience because truth and righteousness are two hemispheres of one man. There was to be no addendum to this book, no errata, if you've ever picked up the second or third edition of a, of a book and there's typically an errata in there correcting something that the publisher didn't catch the first time around. The Bible has no errata. It has no second edition to the Bible. Augustine, for example, wonderfully acclaimed and thought of highly even in this day, wrote many volumes of his work on theological truths but in later life, he had to come and make corrections to his earlier thoughts. We don't have that with the Bible. And another thing that bring me, brings me confidence is its up-to-dateness. If you can say it that way, it's up-to-dateness. And here's the oldest book in the world. And a portion of it was old when Egypt was founded. The book of Job had been written 300 years when Chaucer, the father of English literature, wrote the Canterbury Tales. The book of Ruth was 2,500 years old when America was discovered. Yet there are hundreds of millions of people who read their Bibles every day and find them fresh and satisfying each day. That's because the Bible was adjusted in the beginning to all of the change and circumstance of time and progress of coming ages, God knew what we would need hundreds and hundreds of years later. Its truth, its ethical precepts, its great precious promises are like flower petals, which are, when you touch them and rub them together, create more fragrant sweetness. It's the same with the Bible as you read through it. The gospel is good news. 
And that's the word gospel. It means good news. It's the last tidings from heaven of a loving God. And then also its tone of authority. The Bible's tone of authority. It might be supposed that a, a book dealing with spiritual truths or all of which lie beyond the purview of the physical senses, which is what the president of the Philippines has, has sent. Take a selfie of you with God. Well, you can't. God is spirit, and he speaks to us, and we view him in, in different ways. It's blasphemy. But with all of this, would speak with some measure of reserve or uncertainty. But there are no ifs or perhapses in the Bible. There are no maybes in the Bible. We want no guesses from the Bible about life and immortality. We want authority. And there can be no final authority with respect to these problems except a divine proof. The Bible says, yea and amen, as Dr. Commons used to always pray. And thus saith the Lord, and verily, verily, I say unto you, but no ifs, no buts, no maybes. Put an if into the Ten Commandments, and you lay a charge of dynamite under the morality of mankind. Put an if under the manger of Bethlehem, and you destroy the happiness of tens of millions of homes. Put an if under Calvary, and you make us, as the Bible says, of all men, most miserable. Put an if under the empty tomb in Joseph's garden, and our visions of life and immortality vanish into thin air. But blessed be to God, there are no ifs in the Bible. It gives no uncertainty. It speaks as the oracles of God. And then, I believe it true because it's truth, it's faultless, flawless truth is there before us. Let's be clear. The claim of absolute inerrancy is not made for any current version of the scriptures. I don't know why. I mean, I think I have ideas, but this NIV Bible has been beaten up by the best of theologians over time, and I'm not sure what the objection is with it because I dearly love the translation. And I was told at one point, some of you know the story, I was teaching adult Bible study in our home church in Florida, and I took exception to one of the uh, words that was translated in one of the, the verses, and a woman stayed after, an older woman, and uh, told me that her husband was one of the translators of uh, that, that Bible, and it really humbled me. And she said it never was to be a Bible that was translated as a perfect translation from the Greek and Hebrew, but was to give some freedom to people who didn't know the Bible, hadn't read it, to make it comfortable for them to read while still attempting to maintain its, its accuracy. But there are some churches that will preach only out of the King James, and that's it. It's the infallible version, I think, in many people's minds. But there are no ifs in any of these translations. And, and again, I want to be clear. I think it would be easier to defend if the hundreds of current versions, English translated versions, 
were so absolutely identical in translation as to show no discrepancies. But even if every English translated Bible word for word was the same, we still would find based on our theological system some difference in how we might interpret it. But let it be clearly noted this morning, however, that these discrepancies are so insignificant as to affect in the, sing the slightest degree the integrity of doctrinal and ethical teaching. If the critics were to be taken at their word, we would be asked to agree that the Bible is full of frightful errors. Its prophecies have failed, they would say. Its history is not historical. Its science is unscientific. Its stories are myths. Its facts are outlandish. And in short, there's practically nothing trustworthy about it. That's what they would have us believe. But I beg to differ. And to the contrary, the critics have not been able to produce a single error or discrepancy which cannot be easily and reasonably explained. Of its 10,000 prophecies, not one has failed yet. The history of the Bible is the only authentic history of the world. It's a deep river flowing backward, if you will, in its course and past the, the ruins of antiquity, past the Tower of Babel, past the flood and, and the creation of the world, past the sea of nebula in the heavens, and beyond to unspeakable glory where it finds its source beneath God's heavenly throne. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. And that history has come out of the ordeal of long centuries of criticism without a successful challenge. Archaeologists are unearthing confirmations every day. It used to be said, for example, that the Battle of the Four Kings, as the Old Testament describes it, was purely a fable until along came a man with a spade and he dug up a royal library in the Valley of the Euphrates and bearing the date 640 BC, wherein were found the names of the four kings. Men with spades are continually verifying the historicity of the Bible in every way. And the same can be affirmed of its science. It's frequently said that the Bible was not intended to be a scientific book, giving the impression that it makes little difference whether its scientific statements are, are trustworthy of God. The question, however, is not whether the Bible was intended to be scientific as a book, but whether it is true or not. If the Bible cannot be trusted at this point, what ground have we for committing ourselves to its guidance in spiritual things? The Bible is the book of origins. It touches biology, zoology, geology, astronomy, indeed every department of natural science. And its statements hold true. It's worthy of note, I think, in this connection that 200 years ago, 
there were more than 80 so-called scientific theories, quote unquote, placed before the French Institute, every one of which was alleged to contradict scripture. Well, where are they now? All have died their death, but the book lives on. And my next reason for believing the Bible is it has power to save. It has power to save in every heart, down below all other wants and aspirations, there is a profound longing to know the way of spiritual life. The world is crying, what shall I do to be saved? And of all books, the Bible is, by the way, you pray for me because I'm writing a short book that uh, will be used as a free handout for us and for you to take to friends on the issue of how to be saved and the truth of the Bible, which I have initially determined to call it the absolute truth. And we trust to make that available for people who, who visit us that maybe don't know. And we don't know them well enough to know if they know. And some of your friends who don't know, to give them a, a book that they can hopefully trust to, to read. Of all the books, the Bible is the one and the only one that answers that universal cry, what shall I do to be saved? There are others that set forth morality with more or less correctness, other books, but there is none that suggests a blotting out of the record of mislived lives. You're forgiven and God remembers no more. Out of the blessed book proceeds a voice that is heard nowhere else God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There are other books that have poetry but there's none that sings the song of salvation or gives a troubled soul the peace that flows like a river. We even have a hymn that we sing like that. There are other books that have eloquence but there's no other that enables us to behold God himself with outstretched hands, pleading with men to turn and to live. There are other books that have science, but there's no other that can give the soul a definite assurance of a future life, so that it can say, I know him who I believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to guard that which I've committed unto him against that day. There are other books of philosophy, but there's none that can make us wise with respect to those great doctrines which center in life and immortality. It is the book that enlightens and sustains and stimulates, but above all, it is the book that points to eternal life. And here's one final reason why I believe the Bible it's because it finds me. The Bible finds me. Those are the words of Samuel uh, Coleridge. The book, the Bible, he said, finds me. The Bible found me on a memorable day at summer camp some 60 years ago. It found me once and again walking through the valley of Baca and has wiped away all of my tears. 
It's found me and upheld me in seasons of weakness and discouragement. It's found me and never failed me. And when I come to that final borderline between time and eternity, it shall find me there and give me a rod and a staff upon which I can lean. And so these are my reasons. And one thing is clear, if you reject the truth of the Bible, it awaits you to be able to give an answer to every person that asks the reason why you do not believe. But I encourage you to do your own thinking. Be honest in your rejection of the scriptures, if that's your conclusion. Take down the Bible from the shelf and dust it off and search it. And be honest enough to put away prejudice and to reject secondhand opinions. And stand on your own feet and farm out your thinking to no one. And open the Bible and read it for yourself. The Bible is its own best witness. Search it with a mind open to conviction, and I am confident you'll arrive at the same conclusion that has forced itself upon me. The Bible is a book to live by and to die by, and it's worthy to be received as an infallible rule of faith and practice. It is true and trustworthy because it is the genuine word of God. And may God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've come before your throne and we've opened your book and we recognize its truth, its trustworthiness, its righteousness, its infallibility, help us, Lord, to live by that and to take that good news and to share it with others, to not be afraid or intimidated, but to stand on our love for you and on the power of your Holy Spirit and trust that you will give us the words to describe why it is that we believe it and why it is that we have hope in this life and assurance of hope in the life to come. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.